to another episode of the Young Mormon Feminist Podcast. I am your host, Julia. We have a very special podcast this month for Transuary, which is talking discussing transgender issues in January. With me, I have Brianna and Grayson, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So, Brianna, why don't you go first? Hello, my name is Brianna. I'm a... Um I'm actually a relatively new contributor to the blog. So far, I've published exactly one thing for the 12 Days of Why I Met Miss last month. I'm actually working on some other posts, though, so be prepared for that. Um, otherwise, I am a trans woman living in Utah County, and I work at a call center and singing choirs. And Brie, you've also been profiled on the blog this month, so if people are interested in checking that out, that's a good thing to to look at. Mm-hmm. And Grayson, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Uh, my name is Grayson, and uh, and I don't think I've ever done anything on the Young Mormon Feminist blog or even looked at the blog before, which is a shame because it sounds reasonable. But anyway, uh, I'm a math major at the University of Utah, and, uh, and yeah, I'm female to male transgender, and I guess that's, that's pretty much it, so. Well, welcome to YMF, Grayson. Thank you. This is one of the first of many times that we, um, you know, are able to interact. So, Brianna and Grayson, you are a couple, Mm-hmm. And yep. so how did you two meet? Well, once upon a time, his parents came to BYU with him, and they were doing this panel on supportive parents of LGBTQIA queer kids. And, it, it was um, actually supposed to be a panel of, like, a whole bunch of parents, but my mom was the, were only the only one who showed up. And <laughs> my dad wasn't originally even planning on being in the panel. He was just going to be in the audience. But because there was nobody else, he ended up being on the panel, and so did I. So, Oh, wow. It was pretty great. <laughs> so that was technically the first time we met. But the first one we really got to know each other was because we're in the same choir. And um, I joined the choir after him. But while, when I joined, he took a bit of a hiatus, and then he came back. And I realized that he sings a really great baritone voice, which is something that I like. And um, he, he, we sang at a interfaith thing, June of 2013. And then he asked me on a date, and we've been together ever since. Cute. And so it's about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. A little more than that now. Something like yeah. a year and two thirds ish. <laughs> I'd say less than two thirds, more than a half. <laughs> So, what? Tell me about this choir that you're talking about. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's called the One Voice Choir, and it's uh, oh, Bree, you're the one who has the really slick sounding mission statement thing for it. You should say that. So we're both in the One Voice Choir. It's a community choir uh, with the goal of building bridges between the LGBT and religious communities and their allies. So basically, we have. Um, queer individuals and religious individuals. It started out being mostly LDS, and culturally it still is. We've expanded the range of the choir to involve other religions as well. And anyone who's either okay with 
being queer and they're religious or they're okay with the religious people and they're not religious and they're queer and we bring people together and we seeing with the goal of you know kind of unifying people together and you know just we just kind of try to bring people together through music that's great and we rehearse on wednesday nights and we are always looking for more people so if you sing uh if you're in the salt lake city area and you want to join us for every Wednesday night at the uh, Christ United Methodist Church over on 3300 South, Salt Lake City. Well, there you go. A plug for joining the One Voice Choir in Salt Lake City, Utah. That's awesome. What kind of music do you guys sing? We, we, do, um, a lot we do a combination of uh, a lot of, you know, religious things. Some, you know, pretty standard uh, Mormon background stuff and uh, and some other religious choral music. And then we do some secular pieces, you know, for fun. That's great. And you're both still in the choir? Yep. yep. Fun. So, had either of you ever dated another trans person before? I have. I've dated... Well, technically, if you want to get into it, I've dated two other trans people before. It's just that one of them that I dated was while I was in high school and... He wasn't out as trans yet, and I wasn't out as trans yet. That's another story for another time. But I've technically dated two two other people before Grayson. If you want to talk about you know being out at least to each other while dating, I've dated one other person. Okay. And for me, I have dated no other people at all. So. Oh, well, cute. I've, I've been on. Uh, I I went on a few dates. You know, like went to prom and stuff, but uh, this is my first relationship. Well, that's sweet. What Was it important for either or both of you to date another trans person? Is that something that you were looking for? I wouldn't say it was something that I was particularly looking for, but it does uh, make things very convenient for, um, you know, church purposes, the whole, uh, you know, it being heterosexual either way you look at it and so there's no chance of church leaders making a fuss that way well i mean there's there's always a chance of church leaders making there's a fuss about things never underestimate <laughs> yeah i, I wasn't i wasn't specifically looking for trans people today it just kind of happens is it just because of the group the people that you tend to associate with and um yeah and, and in a way it's I feel like there there are some advantages if you're trans to dating other trans people of just, you know, you have a lot of that shared background of experience that is really not something that uh, is easy to understand if you haven't gone through that kind of experience. So, just... Exactly. exactly. I mean, if you date other trans people, you have a lot of the shared experience. You don't have to give Trans 101 to your person that you're dating. And, you know, if you can come home and be like, man, I'm having a really bad time because of, you know, I was having really bad dysphoria because I had to listen to my own voice and, you know, things like that. And instead of people being like, oh, that's something I can never understand. It's, oh, I've been there. I know how that is. I know that. So <laughs> exactly. It's a lot easier to be able to relate with a lot of the experience. Interesting. So how... Is your relationship different, if at all, from a cis-het relationship? 
I don't think we're uh, really a whole lot different. I mean, we're both also on the asexual spectrum, so I guess that makes it a little different in that we're, like, a little bit less physical, I guess would be the word, than some people, but that's not really to do with us being yeah, trans so much as both of us just not really being super into PDA or anything. Yeah, and I, I guess I don't have much basis for comparison, so uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it helps lend itself a little more to being able to kind of break down those kind of really old-fashioned rules that people try to set for dating, as in it has to be planned, paired, and paid for, as the classic thing the co-worker used to tell me of, oh, well, you know, the guy has to plan it, you have to pair up, and then the guy has to pay for all of it. I feel like it helps lend itself a little bit to breaking those kind of really old-fashioned things, but I feel like that's kind of a standard for a lot of more modern feminist people in relationships anyway, so I'm not sure if there's really any major differences. Do you feel like you have to educate people about your relationship at all, or do you because you still present as a, or because you're still like a heterosexual relationship? Do you feel like that that you don't have to educate people as much? Well, yeah, and both of us pass really well, so uh, for for most purposes, you know, we just look like any other couple, and you know, within the trends and queer communities, uh, it's just, you know, oh, that's cool that you're both trans, that's, I don't know. I, I've had people ask if dating a guy makes me gay before, but <laughs> then they hear that we're both trans, and then they realize that it doesn't matter how they would look at it, it's still gay, which doesn't really fix the problem that I'm still a woman dating a man, regardless of either one of our medical history or sister trans status, but... Um, yeah, I really haven't had too much of a problem with telling other people about it. I think the most I've ever gotten wasn't actually with Grace, and it was with my ex when I had someone ask, you know, well, if you're both trans and you're dating each other, why did you both transition if you're still interested in each other? Which doesn't <laughs> oh really gosh. make sense to me, yeah, but I guess some people sense. think of it that way. Yeah, that makes no sense at all. <laughs> I guess maybe they don't understand that being trans has very little to do with your relationship. Sexual orientation, yeah. right? Interesting. Um, so you kind of alluded to this when Grayson, you talked about like, you know, you might be able to pat, um, slip by kind of LDS leadership a little bit because um, your relationship is heterosexual, no matter how you look at it. Are there any other advantages to having, but to your relationship in that way? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I, um, other than the, well, it gets complicated, at least in my experience. Um, I mean, the church thinks that it's great because we're both trans, as far as church leaders already being okay with either of us being trans. Hmm. Um, of course, when you run into the problem of church leaders who don't like the whole concept of being trans at all, then they'd see us in a very different light and see it as a really a very bad thing because they, 
I've had people talk about how we're both giving up our ability to like have children and how we're not, you know, giving into God's will in that way. Um, but I guess in terms of like really practical advantages of both of us being trans, kind of going through society, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say that it's nice because both of us kind of have that chance to just kind of be who we are because neither of us really worry too much about the other one's like expression in terms of like gender stuff because yo we're both trans yeah and so we don't have to worry about like covering over that part of ourselves so i guess there are you know really good practical things about it and of course there's the whole um clothing exchange that has happened oh that's true (laughs) wait tell me about that well Bree's coat that i I used to have one coat that was a really large and excellent coat, although it has this problem that it generates so much static electricity that the one winter that I wore it, by the end of the winter, I would, like, involuntarily twitch every time I was about to touch something metal. It's pretty great, but (laughs) I wear it, and it's really warm. And then I've given Grayson some of my shirts before, and bow ties and things like that that I just have no reason wearing anymore because I don't... That's not my fashion sense. Mm-hmm. So fashion style, I just wore it because I had to. Mm-hmm. And then I also had some, like, books that I liked before, but were also, like, the stereotypical dude books I just don't see a whole lot of use for anymore. It was, like, practical guides of, for, like, men's fashion and things that I then gave to Grayson, one of them. And by and when I keep using plural, I mean exactly one book, which is this book called The Art of Manliness. <laughs> but it was a great book. It is a great book. So we've been able to exchange old things that we had before transition anymore, which is great because you know exactly who it's going to. And it's like free presence. And so that, that's been really it's practical. Efficient. It's extremely efficient because we're almost the same size. I mean, my shirt size is slightly larger than yours was. But that's just because I have a slightly larger rib cage. Well, that's very convenient, and that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brianna, how long had you? How long had it been since you transitioned when you met Grayson? And Grayson, same question. Um, well, I actually wasn't totally out when I met Grayson. When I met him, June of 2013, I was out to a lot of friends, but I was go. I was doing what's referred to in the trans community as part time. Which sounds like, you know, being trans is a job, but what it means is that you are yourself whenever you can. But in terms of, like, dealing with certain members of family and going to work, then you have to present as, you know, how you're assigned at birth. So when I met Grayson, I would go to choir and things, and I would be myself. But there was actually a time when I had to go to choir straight from work. And because I was only going part-time and I couldn't, like, bring a backpack full of clothes without raising eyebrows at the workplace, I just had to show up to choir looking like this soft punk dude in the tweed jacket, and it was kind of great. I have that tweed jacket now. You do. I I gave that to you. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you you go full-time? 
Um, I officially came out over Facebook and started going full-time September 28th of 2013. Okay, so shortly after. Yeah, a few months after. Okay. And Grayson, what about you? Yeah, as for me, I, uh, I transitioned when I was 16, and so, uh... Wow, even though I'm a math major, I really can't do math. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, but that, that's been, the problem. It's been like three years by the time you let me. have the ability to do basic arithmetic. But anyway, so I have been transitioned for two or three, somewhere in that ballpark. It was, a, it was about two and a half years by yeah. the time we got together. And then you had top surgery about a month after, which kind of, finalize everything so yeah sorry what did you say he had what surgery uh top surgery it's um uh oh what's the good way of explaining it's a subcutaneous double mastectomy is the fancy term for it okay so yeah tissue tissue removal yeah it's the in the trans community that's the term for you know with the yeah, with the upper half of your body, you know, the surgery that makes that look more like your real gender, uh, you know, as opposed to bottom surgery, which is what people tend to be talking about when they refer to the surgery. The surgery. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So, Brianna, how did your relationship with Grayson, if at all, help you with your transition? Because it seems like you were kind of going through going from part-time to full-time when you were starting dating? Um, It was actually really beneficial because he knew what was up and I could kind of come to him about it. I mean, at that point, I was basically just... At that point, it was kind of just a matter of worrying about, like, my coworkers and things like that. And I'd already been slowly coming out to them, but then when I would run into issues, I would either come to one of two people, and that was either my sister or Grayson... So he was a good emotional support when I was going through that process. Um, also, you know, he gave me the giant coat, which I still own and still wear, <laughs> because I walk to work and it gets very cold in the winter. And no one told me before that every single woman's coat that looks any kind of fashionable will cost $70 and not be good for anything under 50 degrees. True, true, true. All of that. <laughs> yeah. Having reasonably designed clothes is definitely one of the advantages of being male in our society. (laughs) So how, you know, both of you are Mormon, and how do you reconcile Mormonism and being trans? Or how do you fit in your trans identity with Mormonism? Well, from from my perspective, so in the family proclamation to the world, it talks about how gender is eternal, that it's an attribute of our spirits. And that fits in very well to my understanding of my identity as a trans person, that uh, in the pre-mortal existence, I was male, and I still have a male spirit and will be male in the hereafter, but that, you know, our bodies, our mortal bodies being imperfect, uh, you know, sometimes imperfections happen in... uh, sex-related things, and that's, uh, while it is something that there's a lot of misunderstanding and prejudice about in this world, it's, uh, when it comes right down to it, the same as any other imperfection of the mortal body. 
Exactly. Like, there's no better kind of testament to the eternal characteristic of someone's gender identity than if they're born with one gender identity, but their body tells a different story, regardless of whether or not you're male, female, you know, you know gender queer, gender fluid, anything like that. I mean, I there's a lot of people in the church, at least in the mainstream church, who don't seem to see it that way. But I feel like that's mostly just because they still get conflated between gender and sex and think that they're exactly the same thing when really the reality is that they're very different. Yeah, I guess I've never understood how Mormons didn't accept trans within well, the doctrine. It, like, I, I mean, I think, I, I, I think from my perspective like 90% of it is misunderstanding exactly what you said, yeah. like the difference yeah. between gender and sex and like not just not really knowing what transgender is and think exactly. and conflating with like cross-dressing and things like that, which, you know, can be part of it, but that's not what it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and my perspective on it is just that, you know, uh, while the gospel is perfect, the church is made of imperfect people who are subject to, prejudices same as anybody else and so you know our society has taboos regarding uh gender related stuff and that affects the way even people in the church act and that's uh something that people should be striving to overcome in their lives but uh i i feel uh i try to be compassionate about people's lack of understanding that uh they're trying to do the right thing, even if they don't necessarily understand the correct way to do that. And so I just try to give people the best information I can and, uh, you know, let them make their choices. That's Yeah, and it's, it's kind of the difference, again, between uh, actual doctrine and then church policy and church culture, because while well, you can have your doctrine, which, you know, that's how the church is supposed to function. You can also have a lot of policies and your church culture. And it's kind of the little dirty secret of the church where there are actually policies that are influenced a lot by the culture. I mean, a more benign example is the fact that starting in like the 1930s, right, as we were coming out or going into a depression, then they started having policies for how to distribute food better to more poor people. You know, that's a, a more benign example of how the culture... And the times can change how the policies work. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, this is one of those examples where I've searched in the scriptures. I've really found nothing that specifically condemns trans people. There's also very little that really condones it either. But at the same time, there's nothing in the scriptures that condones, you know eating sushi on a Tuesday night, but <laughs> we're still but allowed to I do that last I checked. <laughs> Yeah, and so in that case, it's just, it's really just a matter of policy, and even the policy is very vague. Um, the Church Handbook of Instruction actually has a section related to trans issues, except that what it says is that if an individual has an elective transsexual operation, that they may be subject to disciplinary action, which may include excommunication, and that if they are a convert looking to join the church and they are trans, 
they will need the approval of the first presidency first to sign off on it. Or they may need, sorry, they may need the approval of the first presidency. It's a whole lot of very vague, well, you might do this and you might do that language, which mm-hmm. really leaves it up to a lot of personal interpretation by bishops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and, very much uh, a situation of bishop roulette, that if you uh, are a trans person in a ward who, you know, where the bishop and the local leaders are accepting, you know, like I've had, then, you know, things go pretty well for you, and if you have a bishop who's transphobic, then things can go really badly. Hmm. Exactly. So, for example, Grayson, he's had a very good time with it. I mean, he's had a great bishop, he's been able to be very forthcoming and have the bishop be, you know, more or less completely supportive of him. Um, I had kind of the opposite experience. The bishop took that and just took that bit of policy about a quote-unquote elective transsexual operation, which to me sounds kind of like elective antidepressants or an elective pacemaker, but I guess that's besides the point. Um, And took that and interpret that as any amount of being trans is automatically against the church. And, you know, he said some very damaging things. He told me that my misery is going to be tenfold in the afterlife, for example, which isn't actually a thing in policy or doctrine, but that's what he felt he was supposed to say. And so it's very much a case of individual bishops, individual sick presidents. Uh, There's one individual, my friend Eddie, she actually had her parents talk to the bishop who spoke to the stake president who sent a letter to the first presidency asking them to clarify on the uh, trans policy. And they got a letter back that said, well, the wording is very vague, so it's up to you to interpret it. And in that case, the bishop said, well, um, if you're a woman, you don't have the priesthood. That's about all that we're going to impose on you. And so she actually had very good acceptance in her community. So wait, was she ordained as a priest before? Yeah, she was in, yeah, because before she, because she was MTF, or male to female, sorry. And so before she had the ironic priesthood, I don't, I'm not sure if she was an elder yet, but uh, yeah, then when she started transitioning, her bishop basically said, well, women don't have the priesthood, so you don't have the priesthood, and you don't have a temple recommend, but other than that, she had no problems. Wow, interesting. Why the temple recommend? I mean, I know you don't know all the details, but um, that... well, I think it's yeah. that's. I think that's a simple case. Well, okay, this is extremely, you know, just my opinion because I'm obviously not a church representative. My because the temple recommend thing is a fairly universal thing among trans people. Either they're not given a temple recommend, or they do have one, but they just don't feel comfortable going in because they're told that they can only go in to, like, the locker rooms and things of the gender they're assigned at birth. Hmm. And I feel like that's just kind of a case of bathroom panic, which is, for anyone who doesn't know trans terms, a term for when people panic about the concept of a trans person in their bathroom or in their locker room. It directly coincides with the really harmful stereotype of trans people as being these, like, predators lurking in your bathroom looking for people to assault. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I feel like a lot of it was a case of kind of bathroom panic, locker room panic. Oh, we can't have this person who is trans in our locker rooms and then doing our extremely gendered things in the temple because they still conflate gender with sex and they're afraid that the, that the um, 
you know, the, the things that you do in the temple, since they're extremely gendered, a lot of them get concerned about the eternal nature of that. Okay. And then they get concerned just about the more practical aspects of having a trans person in your bathroom is apparently a scary thing. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I've had the experience where I do have a, a current temple, temple recommend, or at least that I've, you know, I've had the interview and passed all the questions and stuff. Um, uh, my current leaders are actually still deciding whether I'm going to get, like, the actual physical piece of paper. Because, you know, I've already said that until, you know, church leaders specify otherwise, I'm not going to be going to the temple because, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable, uh, you know, doing anything dishonest that, uh, you know, I'm, I need to be doing temple work as the male that I am. And until I'm male on the records of the church, you know, that's probably going to have to wait. But so it, it's still a matter of discussion whether I'm going to get the actual physical piece of paper. But, uh, but yeah, that I do have a temple recommend in the sense that, you know, I've done the interview and everything. So, again, that's something that varies a lot from uh, ward to ward, I guess. So it seems like regardless of whether your local leadership is supportive, the broader church does not have like a method of changing your gender on their records. Not is that correct? A, not an official way. There has been this kind of ad hoc backdoor way that people have used wherein you either get excommunicated for being trans or remove your records from the church, then move to an area where people don't know you after having your name and gender legally changed and then getting baptized. Um, personally, while I don't I don't really frown upon the people who do it because that's their decision. Personally, I feel like that would be a bit dishonest for me to do. Mm -hmm. But it is something that people have done in the meantime, since the church isn't currently, doesn't really have a, a method set up for changing your gender in church records. And I, and I have heard, like, second or third hand rumors that, um, that for people who have, like, intersex conditions that are, you know, more physically obvious that uh, that they have been able to get their gender changed on the records of the church. I mean, I have no idea whether that is actually the case, but uh, but if it is, then uh, you know, there's the argument from that angle to be made that you know, being trans is a form of intersex condition, which I believe that it is, and so. Uh, but anyway, I don't I don't know whether that's actually true. So, have you? Either of you ever heard of a trans person serving a mission after um, transition? Not after transition. Okay. Have you, I, I mean, have they been, have people tried and their leaders have said no? Or it just you haven't heard of anyone seeking to? I haven't heard of anybody trying. Uh, I mean, I, I thought about it, but uh, in the end decided that my... Uh, my mission was where I am, that I'm uh, more called to be reaching out to the trans and broader LGBT communities, you know, here where I am. So, uh, so no, I didn't end up trying. I feel like a lot of it is equal parts. So many people in the church only can only really start a transition after they're outside of that mission gap or the mm -hmm. mission age range and it's also equal parts 
it's just kind of assumed that trans people aren't allowed to go on missions. And so I'm not sure if there's people who have tried to go on a mission post-transition. If they have, they haven't talked about it, at least not to me. Hmm. Uh, everyone else that I know is just kind of an unwritten rule that a lot of us just kind of know that that's not a thing that is in the plans for us. Not at the moment. Interesting. Well, and one thing that um, you know really kind of stuck with me is when you were talking about the doc or the, the handbook that states the policy and they use the word transsexual, which as we know, the church is not very, um, you know, current or forward thinking with their terminology, but that's a particularly, that's, that term is particularly indicative of this conflation between gender and sex. Is it not? It's, it's true. That term, well, some people, in the community still use it, is generally considered to be somewhat of an outdated term. It was used a lot, and it still is used a lot in certain parts of the trans community when discussing the difference between people who are trans and haven't had surgery yet and people who are trans who do decide to undergo surgery and have the means and have got it done. But of course, that is extremely biocentric is a term I like to use for it in that it just assumes that in order to be fully trans you have to have some kind of surgery done, you have to have some kind of medical procedure, which and surgery is expensive yeah, exactly, it assumes a lot about people, it has very classist undertones in my opinion, in that not everyone can afford $10,000 to go fly to Thailand for and be in a hospital for a month Although, to be fair, I've heard the food is really good in Thailand. So. <laughs> True. So you could multitask. That 10 grand will buy you a lot of Thai food, I suppose. True. True. Wow. Um, so you're saying that some people in the trans community use transsexual to refer to post-surgery. Yeah. I, I see it a lot more in the um, community for those that are a little bit older, I feel in the younger trans community, that term is kind of just not used anymore. Okay. Yeah, it's not a, ter it's not a term that I, I hadn't ever heard it used that way, but I'm, yeah, mostly hanging out with the young crowd, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> um, so, this is a little bit off topic, but, um, as you may know, Transparent, the TV show, was nominated and won several Golden Globe Awards. And I'm curious to get your brief thoughts on that series, if you've watched it. Uh, I, I have watched it, so I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I don't have Amazon Prime. I've considered watching it. Um, I've heard some really good things about it. I've, I've heard... I mean, the... The main character, the main trans character in the story anyway, is being played by a cis actor, which I feel like is a right. really lost opportunity. I have heard that they use some great trans actresses as side characters, though. Mm -hmm. But since I haven't seen the show myself, it's really hard to say one way or another how I feel about it, since all I have is the secondhand information from friends who have watched our articles about problematic representation or great representation. Everyone seems to have their own take on it, so I just haven't had a chance to form my own opinion on it yet. 
Well, it's interesting because there, uh, you know, some of the articles talk about how if you, if you as a normally abled cishet actor represent someone who is marginalized in an, a role, you get like awards, you know, but. But if, if you're the person who's actually in that role, then right. you don't. You don't. You don't even get the acting role. <laughs> yep. I've I mean, obviously that. there are some exceptions, but. Uh, that's yeah, and also a... there's the old argument of, well, we, we just couldn't find good actors or actresses for these roles that fit into the community. But at the same time, there are trans people sleeping on the streets who would love an acting career. So it's not for a lack of trans people in the world who can act. It's just a lack of finding representation. And, of course, I I can see in some circumstances where they would feel like it's okay, like especially if they're looking for someone who's just barely transitioning, they need the before story and then a just barely after, you know, that sort of thing. I can understand to an extent then, but at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of times when... It, they should have gone with an actual trans actress, an actual disabled person, an act. Or my favorite example, the um, what was it? The movie about Moses that used they should have gone with actual Egyptian people. <laughs> they could have gone with actually Egyptian people instead of white people for all of the good people, and then the Pharaoh being was was it the only Egyptians the villains. It was something like that. It was huh. a very problematic representation. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> well, um, just to wrap up, uh, I want to ask each of you what your, let's see, what your favorite date with each other was. That's really difficult. Um, <laughs> goodness. Well, for me, I mean, it was kind of a really quirky thing, and I'm not sure if it was considered to be as great for Grayson as it was for me. But on our anniversary, we went geocaching. Well, geohashing, which is where it's a randomly generated thing. And we ended up in this really scary town called Camus. And we ended up on the outskirts of that. And I was thought we were going to get, like, eaten by murderous, like, <laughs> hill people. <laughs> like that, it, That's in southern Utah, right? No, it was in Heber, close to Park City. Oh, it was, okay. And then I looked it up on Wikipedia later, and apparently at some point the town was entirely run by, like, a fundamentalist, like, some kind of fundamentalist group. But it wasn't, like, a regular, like, fundamentalist Mormon group. It was, like, something else. I don't know. But it was a very interesting experience, and <laughs> I thought it was pretty great. Oh, o also, Obviously very memorable. Exactly. And I'm not sure if the, uh, the time we met Laverne Cox counts as a date, but if it does, then that was definitely the best. Well, that was fun. I don't know. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to choose just one. No pressure. You just have to measure our love. <laughs> uh, um, I liked that time that we uh, that we went to the Gilgal Sculpture Garden thingy. Oh, yeah, that place was super mysterious, and we got to pose and do group selfies with the Sphinx with Joseph Smith's face carved into it. Yeah, 
And then we got to go to Rubio's. That was fun. <laughs> that was a good time. Fun. Well, thank you both so much for joining me and um, being so open, talking about your relationship and your experiences. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. And join us next time with Young Mormon Feminist Podcast.